0: Welcome everybody, i um, really pleased to, to see you all here. Um, I'm welcom- welcoming you to the, um, I'm good to read this because it's a bit of a tongue twister, the 7th Space for Thought Literary Festival um, at LSE, so um, welcome everybody to that. So it started today, 23rd February, it's going all week, so I hope that more people will turn up for other events as well. It finishes on Saturday the 28th, um, so um, I'd l- would like to start by introducing myself. Um, my name is Jennifer Richards, and I'm a professor of Early Modern Literature and Culture at Newcastle University. I have a particular interest in, um, and expertise in history of rhetoric, and I'm interested in voice. Um, and so, because of that, um, I'm always all ears to hear what my um, colleagues in linguistics have got to say, and Did especially...
1: You
0: your voice. Yes. Is the... Um, is this... Yeah okay, um, I'll stand up actually. That might be easier. So, um, so I'm really pleased to introduce um, our speaker today, Professor David Crystal. Now, can we call you David?
2: Mm-hmm. Right, um, my, my mum did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, she only
2: called me Professor when I was about three. <laughs> so, okay. Well,
0: um, um, David has many hats. So he'll be known to a lot of people here as um, a broadcaster and a writer. To me, he's known as um, an academic, having had a very a long very long and distinguished academic career as a linguist. He's really at the forefront of English language, history of English language, and linguistics in the United Kingdom, and probably in the world, actually.
2: Oh, the universe, actually. <laughs> okay, why not? Why not? Why not. Yeah, I'm, I'm well known on Mars. <laughs> yes.
0: He's written a lot of books. He's written a hundred, more well, more than a hundred, I think. Uh, it, 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 to be honest, David, you seem a bit unstoppable to me, because I was just finding out, even as, I, as we were sitting down upstairs, about more books coming out this year, more books that I have to um, read, add to my Christmas list. Um, the, and I think that David's written about just about every linguistics topic that relates to the English language. So in particular, in, of interest to me, his work on intonation, I have to mention a fantastic, a book I absolutely adore, which is Pronouncing Shakespeare. So he's a Renaissance person like myself, and that book came out of a remarkable collaboration with um, the Globe Theatre. So in many respects, for I me, mean, he's a really—I um, I used to be head of school, so I had to work with linguists. You're an unusual linguist for me because you really do reach out to people and. Um, Um, And there are many other um, texts. Anyway, there are a hundred. Don't worry, I'm not going to read through all of them. Um, But there is one... uh, Well, feel feel free. (laughs) You've got some great titles. There's one, um, You Say Potato. I did like that title, but that's uh, for another day. But we're going to be talking about this book um, today. We're going to be hearing about it, Words in Time and Place, which is um, David's uh, new book. And it's based on um, the historical thesaurus at the Oxford English Dictionary. I think we're going to hear a little bit about that. That is itself um, a really fantastic resource. Um, I, think, I think we are going to find out a little bit about the difference between dictionaries and, um, and the thesaurus as well. On the website for the um, OED's historical thesaurus, I couldn't help but notice that they, one of the claims they make for the thesaurus is that it tells us a lot not just about the English language, but also about the speakers of the language. So with that in mind, I was wondering, what well, this book might tell us about David. And I'm just going to read out some of his chapter titles. Chapter 2, from Neb to Hooter, words for nose. Chapter 3, from cup shop to rat Ast, words for being drunk. <laughs> chapter 5, this is the last one I'm going to mention, from gong to shitter, I've always wanted to say that word in public. <laughs> and closet to the House of Lords, words for privy. So we will find out. Okay, so I'm going to, in a minute, we're going to welcome David. But before um, I hand over to him, um, just a couple of things of housekeeping that I wanted to mention. If you want to, um, first of all, make sure your phones are off. I'll make sure that mine's off in a minute. Um, if you're going to tweet, Um, uh, you're very welcome to do that. The hashtag, see if I can remember this, is hash LSE LitFest. I believe we're going to have a talk for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, then there'll be plenty of time for questions. Um, The last thing I wanted to mention is that we are being recorded and hopefully, if there are no technical glitches, there will be a podcast of today's um, talk. But if I could ask you to join me in welcoming um, David to the
2: podium. Well, thank you, Jenny. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a delight to be back in LSE again, though never in this amazing building. I've never been in a building quite like this before to talk about the historical thesaurus of the OED in relation to this particular book. Um, yeah, it, it's my nose, you know. <laughs> is it, is it, I mean, yeah? yeah, And the glasses there. Very clever to uh, do little diagrams like this to capture the identity of one of the subjects, which is indeed the nose in this particular case. Yes, well, let's begin with this distinction. The historical thesaurus of the OED. right. Well, the contrast, of course, is with the dictionary. So let's begin with that. The difference between a dictionary and a thesaurus. It's perfectly obvious, of course. You've probably got both on your shelves at home somewhere or other. In a dictionary, you know the word and you want to look up the meaning, or the spelling, or something else about it, but you begin with a known word. With a thesaurus, it's the other way round. With a thesaurus, you know the meaning, or at least you have a vague idea about a meaning, and you want to look up a word. Because you're not quite sure which word is the best word for the meaning that you're groping to express. And so if you've got Roger's Thesaurus, for example, at home, which is one of the most famous ones, then you use it, what, how do you use it? You go to the index at the back which will give you an idea as to the area of usage that you're interested in, and then it will send you to a topic area, and you can see there all the words that relate to that topic area, and you choose the one that you think's right, and everybody thinks you've got a fantastic vocabulary because you found it all by yourself. (laughs) You'd be amazed how many people use thesauruses or thesauri in that way, uh, a lot of poets do, you know, the poets are brilliant with words, yeah, but they've all got a thesaurus on their shelves, or a fair number of them have, I you always ask them and they never admit to it, but then eventually you persuade them and they say, yes, well actually I do sometimes look words up in a thesaurus. So anyway, what we've got today is the Oxford English Dictionaries Historical Thesaurus, now that's the second thing, Historical Dictionaries and Historical Thesauruses, a historical dictionary. Is a history of all the words in the language, in a language from the beginning to the present day. Very difficult task to achieve. There is only one, really, and that is the historical Oxford English Dictionary. Started in the 1880s, killed several editors uh, because everybody thought it would be done. When the Philological Society said, start this historical dictionary, they gave them, I think, about 10 years to do it and they reached the end of letter A by then. Um, And James Murray, the editor, died of a broken heart when he realised he wasn't going to see the uh, first edition. And it went on and on and on until... Well, it wasn't published, really, until the 1930s in its full form. You know, 30 years of work. And, of course, it's still going on at Oxford, the current team, trying to keep pace with the evolution of words in the language. How many words? Well, in the English... In the OED, there are something like, well, 600,000 or maybe maybe it's approaching 700,000 now. Um, that's only a fraction of the words in the English language, of course. Nobody knows how many words there are in English. If you add the combined totals of the Oxford English Dictionary and, say, the American Webster International, you will get over a million because they don't cover the same ground, you see. Um, American Dictionary has a lot of American dialect words in it, for example. And neither dictionary includes all the specialist technical terms that you have in, say, a dictionary of physics or chemistry or biology. So nobody knows how many words there are in English. Oh, and we haven't even started to talk about the abbreviations yet. Do abbreviations count as words? Well, yes, the BBC, ITV and all this sort of thing. How many abbreviations are there in English? I don't know. But Gale's Dictionary of... Acronyms, Initialisms and Abbreviations has got half a million abbreviations in it. So that has to be added onto the top as well. I mean there must be millions of words lurking out there in the English language as a whole. Because that's another thing that the OED is not so good at yet. World English and all the variations there. Remember, two billion people speak English now in every country in the world. And there are 400 million people speaking English in India. And what about their local vocabulary? Only a fraction of it turns up in the OED. So when one says that the OED is the largest historical dictionary, well, yes, it is. But it's still only a microcosm, really, of the potential size of the English lexicon. Well, the OED, as a dictionary, then took, well, over a century for its second edition to come out, and now a third edition. And everybody thought that would be enough. At least we've got the historical guide to the language there, A to Z. And then they came up with the idea of the thesaurus. I remember being at the meeting here in London, at King's College actually, where the Philological Society was meeting, this was back in 1960-something, I forget, four, I don't know, I'm not sure, Um, when Michael Samuels from the University of Glasgow proposed the idea of a historical thesaurus. And we all said, it can't be done. It can't be done. Because the idea is now To take the notion of themes that you find in, say, Roger's Thesaurus, words for love, words for the toilet, words for whatever, and do this historically. In other words, take every word in the OED and group them thematically into whatever domain of knowledge they happen to belong to. It's going to be a big project, he said, and we said, you know, you'll never do it. (laughs) It's just too big. Well, he did it. It killed him, too. Um, It took them 40 years. Michael is now dead. The team is still there at the University of Glasgow, however. Um, It took them 40 years. The book came out. The books came out in 2009. Have you ever seen them? (laughs) Here they are. This is the historical thesaurus of the Oxford English Dictionary. Two very large volumes. Volume number one. There it is. I mean, what we have here is the five hundred or 600,000 words in the Oxford English Dictionary. Tiny, tiny print, as you can see. You can rummage through them afterwards if you'd like to have a look. And that's the data, as it were. And this even larger volume is the index, (laughs) you see, so if you want to look up one of those words that Jenny mentioned earlier on, where would you look, you see, which category does it belong to, you've no idea, so what you do is you go to the index, find the word, gives you a huge long list of reference numbers, you then go to the other book, hunt around in this other book until you find it, and there is the word along with all the other words. It's easier online, let me tell you. (laughs) Online, it's dead easy now. As you know, the OED online has been around for quite a while. And if you go to OED.com, there you'll find the dictionary. And in the corner, you'll see headings such as historical thesaurus. Click on the historical thesaurus and you go directly into there. And it will then take you down and down and down and down and down through the categories that are recognised by the thesaurus. Which leads to the next point. What are these categories? Well, the one thing we know about classification, about taxonomy, is that there is no such thing as a perfect taxonomy. Remember what we're trying to do. We're trying to classify the world here. Every aspect of existence, we're trying to classify it. That's what taxonomists do. And thesaurus writers are taxonomists. And you have to appreciate that There is no such thing as a kind of totally agreed classification of anything. There's dispute all the time. Let's take something as obvious as the countries of the world. If it's your job to classify the countries of the world, how are you going to do it? You're going to start probably by thinking geographically and saying, well, there's Africa and Asia and Europe and America. Oh, is there America, though? You think then maybe it should be North America and South America, right? So I will have those. But what about Central America? Is that part of North America or South? Or should we should we have it separately? No, we'll have it separately. Central America. Okay, transfer that argument over to this hemisphere. We've got Europe. We've got Africa. What do I do with the Middle East? Is the Middle East part of Africa, or is it part of Europe? No, it's separate. We'll call it the Middle East, shall we? Now, where shall we put Turkey? <laughs> is Turkey part of Europe, or is it part of the Middle East? And now it ceases to be a geographical argument. Now it's a political argument, it's a, it's a historical... All other sorts of factors now come to, to, to mind. And you suddenly realise, when you're classifying anything that decisions of this kind are being made all the time. And if you want to prove it to yourselves, all you've got to do is take any two classification systems, any two uh, library systems, you know, how do you classify books in the library, for example, and compare that with some other system, uh, like the Google uh, matrix of, of categories, and you'll see differences everywhere. So the first point to realise is that there is no such thing as a, an absolute perfect taxonomy. A taxonomy reflects the mindset of the person who has invented the taxonomy. And it's the same here. So as I'm giving you some examples, you may well at some point say, well, I wouldn't classify it like that. I wouldn't assign this word to that particular category. Well, fine, go write your own historical thesaurus then. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the way they've done it. And you have to appreciate that there are always... Um, Uncertainties about word assignment. So what did they do? Well, they divided the entire universe of thinking into three broad domains. First of all, they talked about the external world, the world of the, uh, the world the external world, the world of the mind, and the world of society. The external world, let me just give you an example that relates to the book here. This is, uh, they put the nose on the front. Well, how do you get to the nose? Well, they go like this. There's the external world, broken down into the living world, broken down into life, then the body, then external parts of the body, then the head, then the face, then the nose, then the parts of the nose. And eventually you get to the specific items to do with nose, like schnozzle and snout and horn and proboscis and hooter. (laughs) hooter being very interesting because it is the only new word to come into the English language during the 20th century to talk about the nose all the other words about the nose have been there for donkeys years hundreds of years but along comes Tony Hancock that some of you may remember and he starts talking about the hooter for the nose that sort of thing and uh, I mean it's straight out of Cockney slang really but he popularised it it's the only one Nobody has invented a new word for the nose over the past 60 years. Why is that? What are you doing? I mean, <laughs> you, should, you should be... You know, not me. I'm just analysing these things. You're the guys who invent these things. New words come into the English language, on average, three every day. A thousand a year, on average. So why, why not the nose? Have we, have we got... Are well, they no longer? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is your world, Jenny. Get your people to invent new words for the nose. So, anyway, this is the way a thesaurus, a historical thesaurus, works. Now, there is the intellectual challenge of doing it, there is the fascination of doing it. And the fascination is partly that when you go back over the history of the language, you encounter as it were, the mindset of an earlier period in a way that it's almost impossible to approach in any other way. Say you want to find out about the mindset of the Victorians or the Elizabethans <coughs> or the Chaucer a period of Chaucer or Anglo-Saxon or what have you. How can you do it? What you usually do, and what historical novelists and dramatists do, is they immerse themselves in the books of the period, or the magazines, or the newspapers. So, if you want to find out about uh, Victorian England, you will read as many newspapers as you can, and, and all the rest of it. But, of course, life is short, and you have a deadline coming up, and so you can only read a few things, really. Therefore, if you immerse yourself, that immersion is often only... If you don't mind me mixing the metaphor half baked.
1: <laughs>
2: the thing about a thesaurus is that it, uh, the OED thesaurus, is that it covers every word from that particular period. Footnote now, straight away. I say every. Actually, I don't mean every. What I mean is every word in the sources that these guys looked up, which is larger than any of us could do individually. So they haven't looked at everything. In order to look at everything, you need an internet, and that wasn't around when they were doing that. But they have read, and included as sources, more sources than any of us could ever possibly imagine. And so there is a greater comprehensiveness about the coverage of the words in the thesaurus than you'd ever get by just reading the occasional novel or magazine or newspaper. So having said that, uh, it's the quickest way in to trying to get as close, as authentic a sense of the mindset of a particular period as it's possible to get. And so what you do, if you want to see immediately the fascination of this kind of thing, is you choose a category, like I did. I chose 15 categories. You see, the commission was um, introduce that to the jet... Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. didn't mean it. Um Introduce that to the general public. And so I chose 15 categories, including the ones that you mentioned earlier. And if you want to get a sense of it, this is how you do it. You take, say, the category of words of endearment, what you call your loved one, and you go back to the beginning. So what did an Anglo-Saxon call his loved one, his other Anglo-Saxon? Well, he had four options. He could call her or him a darling, which is still there to the present day, or a dear, which is still there, or a sweet, or a love, Ah, oh, that's nice. <laughs> then, as we go through time, a little later, end of the period, early Middle English, honey, sweetie, sugar. Then a little later, Having got, found all that boring, you're not calling me darling again, are you, my dear? No, no, uh, let's get a bit creative. Now you get animal words coming in. My mouse, you're my mouse. You're my dove. You're my lamb. You're my, du- you're my duck. And some of those, of course, have continued to the present day. Right, duck. You still get that today. But this you don't get today. The Middle English tendency to call your loved one a fish. you are my fish Uh, my my wife is in front here Uh, I've never called you a fish have I really not not yet anyway and specific kinds of fish moreover 1529 first recorded usage of you are my whiting (laughs) a little later you are my prawn (laughs) <laughs> uh, my darling prawn isn't that lovely yeah. and other types of animal as well um, my, uh, in the Elizabethan period 1580 my pug my pug well have you seen a pug <laughs> yeah strange one that mm. uh, 1597 ladybird you are my ladybird you may remember that one uh, the nurse calls Juliet a ladybird at one point in the play And then a sparrow, 1600, you are my little sparrow. Hmm? 1840, I've never understood this one. You are my cabbage. (laughs) Cabbage was apparently a very erotic term in those days. (coughs) And it goes on and on and on. Uh, We don't have so many new terms of endearment these days, but I was amazed to find in the thesaurus, 1962, lamb chop. You are my lamb chop. Hmm, okay, right. That's the sort of thing you can do with the thesaurus, you see. You can sort of follow through types of ways of thinking about something, some of which can't transfer to the present day, some of which are very, very different. And it isn't just a question, you see, of finding one term like this, you're looking at clusters of terms. So that we're talking about a whole set that seems to illustrate not just an idiosyncrasy, that's always one of the problems, you go to an Elizabethan dramatist who, who uses a word in a particularly idiosyncratic way, well that might just be him. I mean how do we know that when Shakespeare wrote about Lady, calling Juliet a ladybird this wasn't just a Shakespeareanism well you know when you start looking at, when you look ladybird up in the Oxford Dictionary and you see all the other instances of ladybird used in that way by other authors than Shakespeare and you begin to get a sense of the general way in which it was used Let's take another example of this kind of historical fascination. You mentioned words for being drunk. Absolutely fascinating area. There's more words for being drunk in the English language, as far as I could tell, uh, than any other sort of daily category, um, <laughs> apart from death, for some strange reason. But anyway, uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, Thomas Nash in his pamphlet, Piers Penniless in 1592, who actually tells us the eight different categories of drunkenness, which are as follows. You can be ape drunk, meaning you're leaping about all over the place. Or you can be lion drunk, which means you're being very quarrelsome. Or you can be swine drunk, which means you're getting sleepy. Or you can be sheep drunk, which means you're incoherent. Or you can be maudlin drunk, which means you've started to cry at this point. Or you can be goat drunk, which means you've started to become a bit lecherous. (laughs) Or you can be fox drunk, meaning you've become a bit crafty. Or you can be martin drunk, which means you've drunk so much that you're sober again. (laughs) And you think, why Martin drunk? Well, the OED's a bit cautious about this, but they think it's something to do with Martin Luther. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? And you can speculate about that for a long time. Well, you know, these are examples of the, uh, what I call the fascination side of the business. But there is an applied side of the business as well. It turns out that this kind of historical thesaurus approach can be very useful. Useful in all sorts of ways. Useful to whom? Well, for a start, useful to people who are writing historical novels and historical dramas and who want to get the language right. And they don't usually get the language right. That's the interesting thing. There are linguistic anachronisms, frequently. Now, linguists are sad people, unlike literary Renaissance scholars. Because what we do when we get a thing like this is we check it out. And so people would say to me, what do you think about Downton Abbey then? (laughs) And Julian Fellows, if you've uh, read about, read something of his uh, writing here, uh, was scrupulous, absolutely scrupulous, about researching the social mores of the time, 1912, When the first series of Downton Abbey uh, was um, presented and he would check up and his footnotes in his uh, annotated scripts will tell you um, how do we know that a table would be laid with a fork and a knife and a spoon and so on in that particular way. Did butlers wear gloves in that kind of way? He researches all of this, spends a huge amount of time making sure that the setting is exactly right and accurate and has advisers to help him in this task. But the language, the language. I went through every script of Downton Abbey. As I said, we're sad people. In the first series looking out for examples of linguistic anachronism. And I found page after page after page of them. And so, for your delectation and delight, <laughs> you tell me, if you like, which of these could or could not have been used by the Downton people in 1912. Well, in fact, they're all, they're all anachronisms, really. At one point, uh, Matthew describes a pair of cufflinks as... A bit fiddly. Fiddly in 1912? No, that didn't come in until about 20 years later. According to this. Now, it's always according to the dictionary. The first recorded usage of a particular word will have been written down after a certain period of everyday use. So you always have to imagine a decade or so before perhaps it might have indeed have been around. But the longer that gap the more likely that there is an error here rather than a genuine overlap of time frames. O'Brien at once says that her greatness, referring to the lady of the house, is done and dusted for the night. To be done and dusted. First recorded in 1953. So now we're talking about 50, 60 years of anticipation of that particular one. Mary, Lady Mary, says Lady Sybil was banging on about her new frock. (laughs) (laughs) Banging on. To bang on about something. First recorded in here, 1979. Very, very recent, isn't it? Um, What have I got here? (laughs) Yes, this is an interesting one. Thomas tells O'Brien, don't be such a grouch grouch. Now this is interesting because that was recorded in the United States as early as 1900. So it was around in the States, but would it have travelled over to this country by 1912? Hmm, don't know. The first sign of it being used in this country is as recently as 1957. So probably not. So you see, this isn't a clear-cut discussion we're having. There are decisions to be made. But if I were writing the series, I would want to avoid any instance where there was some element of doubt if I wanted to be sure that my characters were speaking authentically. What else have I got here? Oh, uh, Thomas at one point says to somebody else, uh, cheerio. Now that sounds rather sort of early, doesn't it, really? But in fact, wasn't Cheerio in 1912. Cheerio comes in in the P.G. Woodhouse era, you know, 1920s and 30s. Cheerio, I'm probably good old hat. Um, no, in those days you'd have said, Chiro. Chiro. Yeah, That's the idiom from that period, and you don't hear that. So, hmm, one more example. Lady Violet suggests a foreign husband for Mary... She says, you can normally find an Italian who isn't too picky. Too picky, meaning fastidious. Very colloquial. First recorded in 1957, you see. Would Violet, would Lady Violet, this is the Maggie Smith character, remember? Would she have used such a word? That's a, that's a woman who looks down on words like weekend. <laughs> would never say weekend. Would she have said picky? I don't think so. So we're now talking character, aren't we? We're not just talking linguistics, we're talking appropriate language for a particular character. And this is one of the applications then of working with a historical thesaurus. So, linguistic anachronism in historical writing. There's another very interesting application and it's in the area of forensic historical linguistics. Now, what on earth is that? Well, imagine you want to forge something. You want to make a mint, so you think, I'll discover a new Shakespeare play. Or a new Dickens novel. Or something, an essay by Dr. Johnson, or whoever you like. And you're a naughty person, so you're going to forge this and get the paper right, and the ink right, and everything. So it really does look like a genuine discovery. And people do this, don't they, from time to time. We have famous examples of forgeries through literary history. Not so much these days, where it's almost impossible to pull the wool over anybody's eyes because of the techniques that are around. But certainly, until recently, you'd get lots of people trying this on. And over the last 20 or 30 years, at least two literary authors have written Shakespeare plays um, as part of their novel. There's an American author called Arthur Phillips who has done precisely this. And he wrote an entire Shakespeare play as part of the novel. It's printed at the back of the book. And one thing he did, which was a sensible thing to do, is he wrote to me and said, would I check that all the words in the play are possible Elizabethan words? Which I did for my pains became a character in the novel.
1: <laughs>
2: there you go, that's life. Anyway, say you want to forge a Shakespeare play. The thing you've got to do is ensure that all the techniques of the language that are there, the grammar, is going to be Elizabethan grammar. Well, that's not too difficult, because after all, there are not that many rules of grammar, and not that many rules that are different from the present day to then. So you'll probably get the grammar right. What about the uh, punctuation? Well, punctuation was coming in in Shakespeare's time. Most of the technical terms that we know to do with punctuation, like comma and, and all that, and, and came in at the end of the 16th century. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Nobody's going to be able to prove that you you're wrong on the basis of the punctuation of the time. Same with spelling. Spelling was still being was evolving. It wasn't standardised in Elizabethan England and so again nobody can prove much there. But what about vocabulary? Yes, if you get the vocabulary wrong people will be able to say straight away that that is a forgery. So let's have a test shall we? This is a Shakespeare play that I've recently forged.
1: (laughs) Uh,
2: An extract from the middle of it. Um, It's Not going to make me any money because now you all know it's a forgery. But still, here we go. Uh, An extract from the middle. All I want you to do is uh, listen to the, the words and then see if you can tell how it couldn't have been written in Shakespeare's time because the words weren't around then. I'll do the whole thing and then we'll do it line by line. This is a dialogue between John and Eleanor in Henry VII. When I return with victory from the field, I'll see your grace. But I will go to George and meet him at his lodge within the park, for there he plans to eat and parl with me. My darling boy, my treasure, take thou care, if with him at his luncheon you do sit, for when he's full of drink, inebrious, he's nothing to be trusted, and his wiles can trap a boy as innocent as thee. I fear not, mother, but will heed your word. I am no silly ass of George's kind and if he starts a broil to gain my end I have the necessary to end his life. He'll go to meet his maker ere I flee. Stay yet a while another day with me. Tis ugly weather to go out so far and country paths are treacherous in the wind. Great Shakespearean stuff, yes. (laughs) Uh, I'm wasted as a linguist. You you know, yeah, I should be in your field, you know, being a creative writer and all that sort of thing. Let's do it line by line. All you've got to do is wave if you think this is a word that's anomalous. When I return with victory from the field. Quite right, all perfectly normal Elizabethan English. I'll see your grace, but I will go to George. And meet him at his lodge within the park. Park? Park's okay. Lodge. 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 First used in 1817. That sense of a lodge meaning, you know, a place within a park where you go, the porter's lodge and things like that. Very, very recent. For there he plans to eat and parl with me. Not parl, of course, so some of you will have noticed it. Parl, as in parley. have a parley. have a chat. No, several times used in Shakespeare, for example. Eleanor replies, My darling boy, my treasure, take thou care. Mm -hmm. Treasure? Mm Treasure. Treasure, that wasn't a term of endearment in Shakespeare's time. Mm -hmm. When did treasure come into the language as a term of endearment? You won't believe this, I didn't until I looked it up. 1920. It's very, very modern. 1920, for treasure, my treasure. Mm. My darling boy, my treasure, take thou care. If with him at his luncheon you do sit. Luncheon, perhaps, some of you noticed. Hmm, not sure about luncheon. 1652. 1652. So could Shakespeare have known it? Ah, don't know, don't know, but... Because it's so close to Shakespeare's time, I would not use it if I were writing a forgery. For when he's full of drink, inebrious, that's like inebriated. That sounds nice and ancient and oldie worldly inebrious. But in fact, it's 1837. It's a Victorianism, a kind of euphemism. We can't say that people are drunk, dear boy. Uh, we call them inebrious.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's nothing to be trusted, and his wiles... Can trap a boy as innocent as thee? Nothing wrong with that. I fear not, mother, but will heed your word. I am no silly ass of George's kind. Yes, well, you probably got that one. (laughs) Silly ass, yes. 1901, 1901. Very modern, very Woodhouse, isn't it? You silly ass. And if he starts a broil to gain my end... You'll perhaps have noticed broil, but it's a very normal Shakespearean word. It turns up a lot in the plays. I have the necessary to end his life. The necessary, meaning I have all that I need, used especially in relation to money. You know, have you got the necessary? Yes, I have. Um, 1772, the first recorded usage of that. So definitely not around in Shakespeare's time. <coughs> He'll go to meet his maker ere I flee. Meet his maker? Some of you worried about that? You'd be right. Meet his maker. To meet your maker. 1933. One feels it's a lot older, but it isn't. It is No recorded usage before 1933. And the last little stanza. Stay yet a while another day with me. "'Tis ugly weather to go out so far, "'and country paths are treacherous in the wind.'" Eh? Ugly weather. Ugly weather. Yeah, that's the thing. Nobody said ugly weather in Shakespeare's time. That's 1844 for ugly weather. It's called weather ugly. In Shakespeare's time you'd have had, there's a few I jotted down, the weather's very unruly. It's turbulent, it's rugged, it's blusterous, it's tempestuous, it's broily, broil again, but not ugly. So there are the two main areas of application for a historical thesaurus. On the one hand, you can use it to make your language accurate if you're writing something historical. On the other hand, you can use it as a detection mode to see if people have been writing things they shouldn't have been writing. But the overriding reason for the thesaurus is nothing to do with those applications. It is simply to provide us with a resource where whatever the area is of interest in the language that you have, uh, you'll find here a cataloguing of it for any historical period. And this is the beauty of it because in this room now there are people with a hundred different interests and each one of you will find something in here. So at the end, what I suggest you do before you disappear, if you want to have a closer look at this, is just open it up and just flip a few pages. It's not readable. Uh, only idiots read it. I, I did. Um, when I was choosing these 15, I went through it page after page after page, and it took a week, let me tell you. didn't read every word, but at least I read every category. And it is absolutely fascinating. So do have a look afterwards if you'd like to do so. And we have now some 10 or 15 minutes for questions. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. you. Dave, thank you so much for that. That was fantastic. Really rich. Um, I I do know the OED really well. I know the historical thesaurus. Um, But I can say it's not really portable. Whereas this is, so
1: um,
0: th- we have got a little bit longer than 15 minutes for questions. So, and there is a, there are roving mics as as well. So, um, when people, if you would like to ask a question, and I do hope you will. If you could tell us your name, if you wanted to tell us um, your affiliation, if that made any, if that was relevant, please do do that too. So, any questions?
2: Yes. Uh, where's the mic? Right, okay. on. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Uh, I'm also a David. David, and I have no real affiliation. I'm a Liverpudlian. Are you possibly north of the border? No.
2: I did spend 10 years in Liverpool. You well, know. yes, <laughs> it takes one to know yeah, one. That's right. I did my secondary schooling in
3: Liverpool. OK, OK. Um, in the context of all these words that are around us, what's the state of our vocabularies? And I'm thinking probably of Twitter, say, yeah. where in 140 characters, politicians, celebrities, members of the public can say rather more than they intended with a very small number of words. So. Do we have more or less? Are we lazier? What's the state of our vocabulary?
2: Well, um, if we take text messaging and Twitter as the two short messaging services of the present day, 160 characters on text messaging, 140 on Twitter, you know why it's only 140, I take it. (coughs) Because what is the relationship? Twitter, remember, is SMS... Short messaging service for the internet. In other words, you need 20 characters. They assign 20 characters for your ID. You have to say who you are on the internet. Remember, uh, Twitter was the stupidest idea ever, you might think. If you had said to me in 2005 that the next big thing is you're going to put your text messages on the internet, you know, what are text messages? I am on the train. I am eating cornflakes. You know, really important things. Which, to your loved one, is very relevant. Um, But you're going to put that on the internet for everybody to read? It'll never work. But of course Twitter has become the fastest growing area of internet activity in the last decade. So, we've got 140 or 160 characters. Don't knock that, that's 30 to 35 words. Remember, in English, a bit fewer in German but still. <laughs> and um, you can say a lot in 30 to 35 words. And you get some quite big words on, the, on, on, on Twitter, especially since November 2009. What happened in November 2009? Twitter changed its prompt. The original Twitter prompt that you had when you went on to Twitter was, what are you doing? What are you doing? And people said, you know, I am eating cornflakes, or remember the famous Stephen Fry example of I am stuck in a lift which he was for a while and everybody, millions of people watched his tweets as he got himself out of the lift. (laughs) (laughs) And then in November 2009, Twitter changed its prompt. The new Twitter prompt is, what's happening? What's happening? And you can see immediately the change in mindset, can't you? What are you doing Is introvert? I am doing something. First person pronouns, present tenses and so on. What's happening? Third person pronouns, future, past time. Twitter became much more of a news reporting service, much more of an advertising service than it was before. And to get to your point, the vocabulary then, you know, expanded enormously. So you get really quite a lot of sophisticated vocabulary on Twitter now, which you never used to do. And so this is one of the problems with studying the vocabulary of the Internet. It's very difficult to study because things move so fast people change the goalposts and uh, you can generalise like mad about say uh, the first three years of Twitter and you think you're doing cutting edge linguistics and you suddenly realise you're doing historical linguistics mm-hmm. because that's over now that period of Twitter history and we're into a new period and what's going to happen next so very difficult to say as far as the novelty of the vocabulary on the internet is concerned it's been generally overestimated overrated As I told you, linguists are sad people, Um, and in 2004, I spent a very boring week uh, collecting all the words on the internet that had come in that were novel uh, in the the preceding 15 years. Remember, we're talking about a period from 1990 only, which is when the World Wide Web came into being, and I managed to get together about 2,000 words. Uh, These are words like, you know, blog, and the families of words that grew up, like blog, blogger, blogging, the blogosphere, the blogiverse, (laughs) and if you blog too much you're suffering from bloggeria. (laughs) All of these. And I collected a couple of thousand. And if I were to do the same exercise now, it would probably be perhaps four or five thousand. And you think that's a lot, but no it isn't when you think of the million words that are in English, etc. It's a drop in the ocean. So I don't myself think that the internet has actually done very much as far as affecting the vocabulary of the language is concerned. It has indeed opened up certain areas. Um, People say, well, what about all the abbreviations? Well, the abbreviations were a fad for a while, the the text messaging abbreviations of the (laughs) C-U-Later type. Um, Very, very popular in the first uh, five or six years of text messaging with little dictionaries being written and all that sort of thing. But they, they've passed their sell-by date now. Uh, if you go to young people and look at their text messaging, as I do quite regularly, I'll be in a school tomorrow, and we look at their texts, and what I will find is that the number of abbreviations is going down and down and down and down and down. They're still using a few, but it's not as popular as it was. And I was in a school not so long ago, and I said to one of the lads having looked at their text messages they collect them for me you see when I go and there were none, none at all I said, where have your, tech, where have your abbreviations gone and he said, ah, this says this 16 year old, you know they're naff you um, used to use those when we were kids and then he said and then he said I stopped abbreviating when my dad started
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah now now ain't that the truth you know, old people want to be cool and young, so we say things like, that's wicked and <laughs> cool, and the young people go, oh, God, Dad, don't, don't, please don't, don't <laughs> No, 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 you, uh, yeah, look at my bling. Oh, no, please. Uh, and so I don't actually see much of an influence, but of course it is an area that has to be taken into account.
0: There was an, another question... Um, about
2: here, I've noticed you, yeah. Yeah, just wave. If,
0: okay. one. If, it, if, it, if you're
4: still thinking of it, please go. So Thank you. Here and then. Um, yeah, t- I'm an ex student, actually. Um, I'm interested. What of mine? Uh, well, I could be. <laughs> <laughs> I've, seen your, I've seen your books around, yes. Oh, right. um, I'm very curious about um, words we're not supposed to use. Yes. Um, in fact, this came up in an earlier lecture. Uh, Coloured, negro, queer. um, Largely because they seem to have changed their meaning. Um, But the other thing I wanted to raise is um, BBC comedies use a lot of Yiddishisms. I heard one this morning, Pish, which I looked up in my dictionary of Yiddishisms, and it says it means to urinate. Um, Other words I've come across, schlep, smooths. ...stick and stum. Yeah. ...I wondered what your view was about these... ...are they a good thing, a bad thing or indifferent?
2: They're a thing? I don't use adjectives like that... ...I mean with language... ...good and bad... Uh, ...they're popular notions indeed... ...but this is what's happening... You know? ...so all, all I can do as a linguist... ...is try to describe and explain... ...but never try to justify... ...because that's not my business... ...that's the business of the people who use them... ...and they're controversial as you're sensing... Uh, what I find most commonly having to do is to correct misapprehensions. So, for example, take Pish. Pish is in Shakespeare. Hmm? It's a very common exclamation in Shakespearean English. Nothing to do with the later Yiddish development that you're alluding to. Now, whether the writer is aware of the two backgrounds here, I don't know. We'd have to interrogate him and, and find out. But an awful lot of the words that are sometimes assigned to one particular social category actually turn out to have more than one social origin and actually (coughs) they've accreted, indeed they have accreted nuances over time. All taboo words do. Remember, all taboo words were never taboo words at the beginning. Even the most ferocious present day taboo words once upon a time were not taboo words. They were perfectly normal words, which over time have accreted a force, and sometimes a horrendous force. But it wasn't always like that, and it can come as a surprise. I don't know whether this is the first time in the history of the LSE Literary Festival that the word cunt is going to be used out loud. (laughs) That, in Middle English, was a perfectly normal medical anatomical term. Perfectly normal. No associations of it whatsoever. But today, of course, it's a ferociously rude word that one would never dream of using in any circumstance other than the LSE Literary Festival. (laughs) (laughs) But even those words, even the words to do with sex and anatomy and so on, are ameliorating these days. So if you go to the BBC watershed guidance um, about which words you're allowed to use at which time of the evening and so on, and compare, say, the present-day watershed rules with what was around, say, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, you'll find that the rules have changed. And a word like fuck, for example, which 20 years ago was inconceivable uh, at almost any time of the day, is now allowed with certain types of programmes, that's important, of course, you mentioned comedy, and certain types of... uh, and certain times. But what's replacing these words... new words and you mentioned the racial terms well these are the new really really serious words so a word like nigger for example would be almost inconceivable to be joked about apart from by a certain group of people who would be allowed to say it as it were um, and is absolutely banned from the airwaves and you know right throughout the night really I mean you should never never use this word with those special circumstances aside And as a result, when a word like that comes along, it changes its meaning as well. And so that word is now being used by some groups as a general term of abuse, nothing particularly to do with racial origins, um, but just as a swear word, you know. Uh, And again, unpredictable, this is the way taboo words work. Now, what does a thesaurus person do with all of these? Oh, this is so difficult for these guys, I... You know, how, how do you handle this? Merely putting them into the dictionary can produce letters of abuse and threats and all kinds of things. It's not an easy job being a lexicography, you know. Um, you get all into all sorts of danger. Uh, and uh, they put them in, of course, with all the kind of cautionary remarks around them to make sure that you're aware that these are sensitive items. Um, but it's still very difficult, and to define them is extremely difficult. <laughs> Mind you, this is not the most difficult area of definition. Uh, The section I found... I chose my 15 themes because I wanted a spread for the whole book and I wanted to choose an area which was really difficult to define. Taboo words actually wasn't it. I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't. turned out to be popular music. (laughs) Popular music. Mm -hmm. You know, all the terms in popular music that you can have. What sort of music are you... uh, are you into these days? Acid House, Swing Beat, Dream Pop, Gangster Rap, multi Multiculti, Noise Pop, Tejano, Break Beat, Chill Out, Indie, Ambience, Noise Core, Baggy, Handbag, and all of these. A handbag? A handbag. Yes, a handbag, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you look at the definitions and the sources... And most of the sources say, we have no idea what this music is. No idea at all. It's what so-and-so plays.
1: That's
2: how they define it. It's the music of so-and-so, and they name some group or other. Well, you know, this is ch- turning a dictionary into an encyclopedia, when you have to define the word by the real world, not by, the, by other words, by the, by the real world entities to which the definition belongs. So you have to talk about You know, Chicago or New York or certain clubs or certain pop groups and so on. And that defines the word. This is most definitely the most difficult area in the thesaurus for me. Thank you.
0: Okay, so we've got a question here and then a question there. My eyes are roving, so if you have a question, just wave at me.
3: Hi, I'm Kieran. I'm a, a freelance filmmaker, so I'm ostensibly more visual rather than linguistic. I'm intrigued by the proliferation of words and popular usage... In a historical sense, I'm guessing that a lot of new words that are used popularly come from different trades, for example, explosions in industry, slang and subcultures, for example. I was wondering if there was any particular eras when there's an explosion of new words and any eras when there's a paucity of new words.
2: Yeah, you've you've absolutely perfectly identified the way in which the vocabulary of a language evolves. It is not, if you draw a graph, and you can do this with the OED, by the way, because they've got things called timelines. And you press on the timeline and you can see patterns like this. It is not from a vocabulary, a minimal vocabulary in 700 AD, a nice regular line going up like this to the millions that we have now. What you get is wumph, 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 wumph. And it, I don't know how the tape recorder is going to handle wumph, 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 but there you go. <laughs> Never mind, sorry. Um, you get uh, peaks and troughs. And these reflect social factors. So There's a kind of regular period in Old English until you get to the early Middle English period. We all know our history. Along come the French, 1066 and all that. They beat us up. And you get 60,000 French words coming into English over the next couple of hundred years. You know, a huge peak of French words coming in there. Then it sort of dies away like that. Then along comes the Renaissance. And suddenly in the 16th century, end of 15th, the early 17th, you get 100,000 Latin and Greek words coming into the language. You a know, huge peak of vocabulary development. And then it sort of calms down a bit during the 1700s, to the 1600s and into the 1700s. And then you get the Industrial Revolution coming along, and suddenly you get a huge influx of technological change, and so on, whoomph, up you go again for another peak. And that's the way it is, you know. Uh, the different subgroups that you mention, they're all part of the mix, of course, But slang is difficult to study historically for the obvious reason that it often wasn't written down because it's everyday colloquial speech, speech of the street. There are certain periods when you simply would not write it down because it was felt to be impolite or simply not the fashion. Considerable criticism in the 18th century, for example, of any kind of slang words at all, any abbreviations uh, that you might use, like pos for positively, oh dear, disgusting uh, and they would simply not write them down so we have very little, in, further back you go very little information about the more colloquial varieties of the language so if you extrapolate from the present day where we know that slang is so important I always assume that the past will have had similar um, battalions of slang words waiting in the wings that simply have never been recorded Insofar as I suppose about a quarter of the words in the various categories here over time are slang words of one kind and another. Um, There probably are a a lot more than that. It also all depends on what you mean by slang. Eric Partridge, uh, the great slang lexicographer, had a little jingle once. He said, the chief use of slang is to show that you're one of the gang. But gang can mean anything. So you can have the slang of filmmakers, the slang of lexicographers, the slang of doctors, the slang of lawyers, the slang of journalists... The slang of anybody. And this involves abbreviations and all the sorts of things I talked about earlier. So I think slang is, is very much a driving force in, in language. It is probably at the heart of language change, but it's very difficult to study it historically.
0: Thank you. So we've got a question here. Oh, right. A question in the center. Very conscious. So all my questions are coming on this side, so I hope I'm not overlooking people. <coughs> all right. OK. Please go.
3: Hi. Um, My background, like Jennifer's, is in Renaissance Lit until I was rescued by LSE. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was talking slash drinking with one of your charges at the weekend, a guy called Warren Russia from Ah, the Passions in Practice team, and he was discussing some of the um, pronunciation work that you do for authentic Shakespeare. And it had me realising that authenticity is not just a specialism anymore, it's an acute specialism. And my question is, given how hard it can be for to, um, to get young people to engage with academic disciplines, how important is it for authenticity to um, be featured in popular culture?
2: OK, thank you. Well, I'll, I'll answer the question directly, but I'll, with a, a rider... I never personally use the word authentic, ever. Um, That's perhaps because of my relationship with Shakespeare's Globe, which I've worked with since it began. Shakespeare's Globe doesn't use the word authentic either. They hate it. How can it be authentic when you've got aeroplanes going overhead, and, and all the rest of it, you know. It is as close as possible as you can get to an Elizabethan theatre with original practices, original costumes, music, instruments, and so on and so forth. So uh, when I'm working with them, I, I say simply we're trying to construct a pronunciation of the time that is plausible. And I use the word plausible rather than authentic one will never know one can never be perfectly authentic about that sort of thing so plausibility is the aim Um, for those who don't know original pronunciation is an attempt to reconstruct the accent of Shakespeare's time or at least the accents of Shakespeare's time because there were as many then as there are today Um, Warren as you mentioned is a member of my son Ben's theatre company uh, which is a Shakespeare ensemble which specialises in putting on productions of plays in original pronunciation Shakespeare's Globe was the first to do this in 2004. The book you mentioned earlier, Jenny, Pronouncing Shakespeare, was my write-up of that experiment. Um, It was an interesting moment. It very much was an experiment. Uh, The Globe was scared of original pronunciation. They thought that it was going to be unintelligible because it's 400 years old, after all. For a theatre that's only open six months of the year, Uh, it has to be full, and they thought that if you did a play in OP, as it's called... Uh, people would not understand it, they would stop coming and the theatre would be empty Um, I asked Tim Carroll, the director how he was able to persuade the Globe to do the experiment in the first place and he said it was very simple I went to the board and I said if we don't do this first Stratford will (laughs) (laughs) as you know the theatre world is full of people who love each other to bits (laughs) Actually, they hate each other to bits as well. They're very envious of each other's programmes. Anyway, they put it on, and it turned out not to be as difficult to understand as anybody thought. If you haven't heard it, I'll do a bit in just a second. Um, And uh, since then, it's become a bit of a movement. Uh, The Globe did another production in 2005, Trolls and Cressida. And then the Americans took up the baton... And since then we've had A Hamlet and A Midsummer Night's Dream and all about 12 plays altogether done in OP, some of which are now available online, by the way. And there's a dedicated website if you want to keep up to date with what's going on in OP, called, you can imagine, www.originalpronunciation.com. How does it sound? Well, if we take the opening lines of uh, Henry V, the chorus speech... Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. That's that part. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the war like Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, lashed in like own should famine, sword, and fire crouch for claimant. Now, You hear that accent, everybody in this room is thinking, or most people are saying, we speak like that where I come from. (laughs) Because there are echoes in all modern accents of that ancestor accent of the day. Those of you who hear the R after the vowel will think... Pirates of the Caribbean, maybe, or, or the West Country accent, or Americans will immediately associate it with some American accents. Uh, those of you who hear the H dropped in uh, Arry and, and things like that will perhaps think Cockney. Those of you who hear vowels like O might think Ireland. Uh, if you hear words like stage, you think that's Lancashire. Yes, yeah, stage, isn't it? Yeah, and so on. Um, but no modern accent is like that. No modern accent says invention for invention, you see. So there are lots of unique features. But is it unintelligible? No, it isn't. You know, It takes a bit of getting used to. I used to go around the globe uh, yard and ask people how they were finding it. Everybody said they tuned in by the end of Act One uh, and the rest. And then they forgot about it and just let it wash over them. But here's the point, to get back to the question of, of um, identity and so on. There were a group of inner-city London lads over in the corner there by the yard, and I went over to them and said, how are you finding the uh, play? This was for Romeo. And they, this, this 16-year-old uh, turned to me and said, oh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> so I said, say, why, why is it great? He says, because it's all original, innit? it? <coughs> so I said, well, what, what's so good about that? And this is what he said to me. He said, because normally, you see, we got a theatre... It's all posh, isn't it? But this lot, they're speaking like us. They're speaking like us. Now, there is no correspondence, really, between the Cockney accent and what you just heard. But the point is that it spoke to them in a way that the traditional voice of the theatre does not. The traditional voice of the theatre that we associate with Gielgud and Olivier and so on is, of course, received pronunciation. An accent that arrived in English round about the year 1800, remember. Very recent. There was no RP in Shakespeare's day. And it took off as an elite accent, an upper-class accent, became the voice of the British Empire and the BBC and so on and so forth. And it was inconceivable for actors in the Victorian and present-day period until recently to speak Shakespeare in anything other than RP. As a result, the vast majority of the English-speaking world felt that Shakespeare was not for them. I mean, Americans would traditionally say, oh, if we're going to do Shakespeare, I've got to learn to do it in that received pronunciation. You know? and, and they feel uncomfortable with doing this because they can't do it very well. And so, suddenly, an accent arrives that speaks to them, that is closer to their accent, actually, than it is to RP, spoken, remember, by only 2% of the population of England of the people in this country don't speak RP and so suddenly an accent arrives that reaches out to them in a way that RP does not and that's one of the reasons I think for the development of the movement in the last 10 years
0: Thank you So I know we've got a question in the middle Am I looking at the right person? Oh there, (laughs) ok
2: Coming along
5: Um, I just wanted to ask you if, uh, um, in the thesaurus, uh, if it captures any um, contextual um, features, like when you use endearment terms, um, are they classified according to addressee gender because we use A to Z, yeah. A to uh, yes. K, right. in the other terms, uh, when we address uh, women, <coughs> maybe not uh, men, etc. Yes. And the other thing I-, I want to ask you about: I wonder about how uh, processes of, uh, you know, and resemantisation are actually captured in uh, um, the thesaurus. Um, for example, a word like silly, which started off as meaning A, and then in the course uh, uh, of time it meant something else and now it means something else. Or words like afraid, for example. Okay, I've got got the point.
2: Yeah, I've got the point. Um, Thank you. The question is there because something I didn't say. And that is that the thesaurus should never be used on its own. It must always be used in association with the dictionary. And it is in the dictionary that you get all the information that will answer the questions you ask. So all the thesaurus does is it tells you that at a certain point in time, the word silly was used, in a cer- was used along with other words. But there are no semantic definitions in a thesaurus, you see. Nor are there in Roger's thesaurus or anything else. If you want the definitions then you have to go to the Oxford English Dictionary, which will give you all the information that's been able to be collected about things like gender variation and context and and language change over the years and things like that. Now, this is difficult to do physically because they've got 12 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary there and two volumes of the thesaurus here, so you'd have to be really very fit in order to (laughs) routinely (laughs) look words up in that way. But online now, it's so easy because when you go down that period of uh, yeah, da, 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 face, nose, parts of a nose. So say you've got up now all the words to do with nose that are on the front here. All you've got, uh, so you, now you've seen them all together and they've all got dates so you can immediately work out what period you're talking about. All you've got to do now is click on the word and you're taken straight to the definition in the Oxford English Dictionary and there is all the information you need. And you click on thesaurus, and you're back with the thesaurus again. So you can go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And the only warning I have for you is that if you think, well, that was really interesting. When I go home tonight, I'll I'll just do that for five minutes. (laughs) It's addictive. It really is. You'll be hours on it. You will. Thank
0: you. So we have a question at the front. Oh,
2: there was one here. Too. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Didn't yes. And then we have a question at the back following that. I know we've got other questions clustering. Can I just say, we, um, I am under strict instructions to um, wrap this up by half past six, but you are going to be around to sign oh, yes. books. Oh, yes. I'll be out- outside
2: so if anybody yes. wants to get a book. Okay. I'll, okay. sign it, or I'll sign anything except cheques. I'll try yes. to be
5: quick. <laughs> I was at Reading University ah. in the Linguistic Department in the 80s, so I did see you there. Did you
2: overlap with me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, right.
5: um, my question is that presumably that English thesaurus was boosted through a lot of learned words. Now, is English particularly well-equipped structurally to learn words from other languages or is it just the political, historical, sociological, those reasons that you've got so many from different languages?
2: Thank you. Yeah, difficult one. Um, I don't think there's any particular linguistic reason for it. When you actually look at the nature of the loan words that come in, um, you can usually immediately identify some sort of social, cultural, event of some sort that motivates it. Uh, Let's remember the figures here. All right, let's say there are a million words in English, roughly. Eighty percent, eighty percent of the words in the OED. loan words that 's the thing you have to remember you know, only twenty percent of the vocabulary of English is actually anglo saxon it 's Germanic you know the words come in from everywhere else, like French and Latin, as I said, over six hundred languages have loaned their words into English. The loan is not the right word because we don 't give them back um, <laughs> you know, the words stay um, but that 's amazing isn 't it and one has to have an explanation for it, and I think the explanation is is the The second point you make about all those factors, I can't see any particular linguistic reason um, for it. I mean, there are sometimes linguistic reasons for a particular style or genre. Um, I suppose pop music is the best example. Uh, Why did rock and roll take off in the English language more than any other language? And the answer has to be something to do with the monosyllabic nature of English, the fact that it hasn't got inflectional endings. It's damn difficult to do a rock song in French, for example, or or any language that's got lots and lots of endings on, because you can't sort of fit them into the rhythm so easily. And English has taken off as the language of pop music for Mm -hmm. linguistic reasons, as much as the fact that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were very popular, you see what I mean? Um, but I can't see any general explanation of that kind uh, when you talk about vocabulary as a whole. I think the social answer is the right one. Thank you.
0: Um, question right this um, with glasses. All right, Thank to you. the back.
3: Uh, just returning to Shakespearean English for a moment um, I mean I, I accepted that Elizabethans didn't spend the whole time addressing each other in iambic pentameter but how, how easy or difficult would it have been for a, a Shakespeare, uh, an Elizabethan theatre audience to understand the um, Shakespearean play would it sort of just been instant or would they have been sort of like us nowadays really having to concentrate quite hard at times
2: oh I think the levels of understanding and, and undoubtedly, the ground, I mean, a total different world, isn't it? From the world of the groundlings uh, to the world of the nobles and the educated and those who knew how to read uh, in the upper galleries of the globe. Um, but Shakespeare and the other dramatists of the time were writing with an, with an eye on where the money is. Remember, this is what, why they were writing. They are not writing for posterity, as far as one can tell. Um, I think if we had them all here now, they'd be a bit surprised to find how successful they've been in literary terms. Um, And so if you're writing for the people who are actually paying the bills, uh, your patrons and all the rest, then you want to give them something to enjoy, and you start producing sophisticated stuff. I mean, things like big poems of Shakespeare, Venus and Adonis in The Rape of Lucrece, uh, (laughs) they were written very clearly with an eye on the patron, whoever that might have been. And um, the plays, I think, would have exactly the same reaction then as we see now. The way not to study Shakespeare is to first start off with a book in school with a class with notes at the bottom and you read it line by line by line and you come to a difficult word and you check it out and you don't go on to the next line until you've checked out that difficult word. That kills Shakespeare. Um, And for many of us, it's how we started hating Shakespeare in school. (laughs) The best way to study Shakespeare is to take them to see a play. Um, And if you don't go real, then on DVD or something like that. Now, I have seen many a time at the Globe, at Stratford, groups of kids from schools from age 10, younger even sometimes, upwards, rocking in the aisles with laughter at the Comedy of Errors, for example, and understanding the entire story uh, and so on. And uh, yet, if you took any one line from the Comedy of Errors and asked exactly what does he mean when he says this, they'd be confused. And so, that comes next. If you want to increase your enjoyment of the play you've just seen and laughed at, Let's look at it. Did you get all the jokes? Did you get all the jokes? No you didn't because look at this joke here. And to understand that joke you have to understand this particular meaning. And that way round where the theatre world underpins the literary world, and the linguistic world for that matter, is the way in which, well, to take the most recent example that you mentioned earlier that Ben's uh, Shakespeare Ensemble works um, and you mentioned there's books coming out all the time. Well, the next book that's coming out this next month is by Ben and me. It's called The Oxford Illustrated Shakespeare Dictionary for <coughs> Schools. Um, and the aim behind that book has been to try and get out of this bind of making the words, which indeed, you know, there are lots of difficult words in Shakespeare. How do you make that easy? Well, you do it by illustration and you do it by putting theatre notes in as often as you can. And generally, trying to make the thing come alive off the printed page and into the ear, you know, from page to stage, as they sometimes say. So, uh, I don't think there would be that much difference. The audiences today are of two different kinds, just like they were in the old days. Uh, the only difference is that these days, virtually everybody can read and virtually everybody has read the play before you actually perform it. This is another big difference, by the way, with the Shakespeare ensemble that you mentioned when you were talking to Warren, um, because uh, Ben's ensemble tries to recreate original practices in the broader sense of the word. Now, remember what was going on in those days. Uh, There was no such thing as a run of plays. You know, these days, a play is on for six months or something. Not in those days, a different play every day. And so the actors had no time to rehearse. So how do you do it? You know? How do you um, get a play into your head and out onto the stage when you've only got 24 hour period to rehearse it? Well, one of the things you do is you don't read the whole play. The actors are given cue scripts. Have you seen a cue script ever? A cue script is just your part with your speeches and just the last two or three lines of the preceding speaker before your, what you have to say so many actors would simply not have known the whole play until they acted in it for the first time that day and this is almost, how do you get your head around that now, but that's how it was and it's the only way in which you could put on play after play after play, it produces a freshness, a dynamic, when Ben does productions, they sometimes call them 24 hour Shakespeare the actors do not see this, their scripts until the day and then away they go, um it's, it's amazing, the freshness the, that can come to a production in that way. Uh, original pronunciation, to go back, just to uh, alert you, by the way, um, there's no production coming up in this country until July. Um, there's a July production of Henry V at Shakespeare's Globe in OP uh, at the end of July. That's the next time you'll be able to see something.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. It's 25 past. I don't think we have time for another question.
2: Well, yep. I'll be around outside if yes. anybody wants
0: okay. to. So, um, so, um, I w- so I would like to, well, first of all, I would like to thank the audience. I think you've been, as soon as we walked in, I just felt this sort of wave of goodwill and you've um, been really, really lovely to look at. <laughs> and, um, but most of all, I would like to thank you, thank you, David, because you've been on your feet for an hour and a half making us think entertaining us, um, telling us about this uh, really important work that's been going on for a long time. Um, so I think that's... Uh, i going to take away a lot with me, and I'm sure everybody else here is too. So.